before I begin this morning, I wanted to say um, on behalf of Jane Bone, uh, thank you for the outpouring of love and care for her um, since uh, Bill passed away this week. Um, I also wanted to pass along, I, I promised her that I would tell you this um, in the email this week, and I, um, as I want to do, went on about other things and forgot the most practical thing, and that is that uh, uh, she's good with food. <laughs> she has been given many, many offers for food uh, because you are such generous people. Um, so she is good with that, but she would love your prayers and continue to, to love her in other ways that the Spirit might lead you. Um, let me pray. Father, I, I want to simply say amen to what has already been prayed and what has already been sung. And I pray that you would, yet, yes, please do that. Please move among us today. Please cause your word to, to come off the page and be three-dimensional before us. And please, will you commission your spirit to work here Work in ways that I, I can't comprehend, I, I can't do, I can't anticipate, that none of us can. Be who you are, that is, please be among us and be supernatural. Be the master over our hearts today, I pray. Fill us with joy. You are a good God. Please do this, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, we live in a purposeless age, a purposeless age. Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, sold a gajillion copies for, for many good reasons, but one of them is that just the very notion of having a purpose in this generation spoke to a huge vacuum, a huge hole within us, within our generation. And here today, we begin the passage, and Luke reminds us again that Jesus has a purpose, He's going to Jerusalem. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and immediately we get a hint here of where this passage is going in verse 11 by Luke's three geographic notes. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and he is passing between Galilee, which was a part of Judea, so Jerusalem and Judea, between Galilee, Judea, and Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Does this remind you of anything? It's like a jingle. You hear the first part of the jingle, and if you, if you read the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts verse, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gave the disciples our purpose to take the gospel from Jerusalem to all of Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. To a world filled with war, hatred, insecurities, pride, and death as exemplified by the very existence of Samaria. Samaria existed because about 550 years before Jesus, the nation of Babylon invaded Israel and deported all of its nobles and intelligentsia and skilled craftsmen back to Babylon, and then they deported people from other nations that they had conquered into Israel in order to dilute the Jewish culture, kind of genius in a wicked way. Um, and then these two groups, they, they intermarried and they developed a, even a mishmash version of Judaism with the capital not in Jerusalem, but in a city called Samaria and not on the Temple Mount they worshipped. They actually had a temple on Mount Gerizim 
And so when the Jews returned from exile from Babylon, they thought of the Samaritans as half-breeds operating a bastardized version of their true religion. And to the Samaritans, the Jews were uppity, uppity privileged Johnny-come-latelys. <laughs> In other words, they hated each other. <laughs> hated each other. For 500 years, they hated each other until Jesus enters a little village between the two and reveals to us and to them nothing less than our purpose for us and for the whole world. So, verse 12. Verse 12, Jesus and his disciples, they enter the town and they encounter 10 lepers on the edge of town. Actually, um, that, that's not quite, my passage says 10 lepers but there's a small but very important detail here. The original text does not say 10 lepers. There's a little note about Luke, and I think about Jesus. The original text says 10 leprous men. Small detail, massive difference. Luke, Jesus, God does not identify these men by their affliction, by the disease that, is, that has conquered them. They're not lepers. They're men with leprosy. Small but important detail. These men had a skin disease that either today we would call Hansen's disease or any number of skin diseases. But the rule back then was that if you had leprosy, you had to stay 50 paces away from anyone else that did not have leprosy. 50 paces. I measured this out last night. It is, goes from that wall to a little bit past the far wall of what we call the cafe. 50 paces all the time. You think six feet social distancing is something? <laughs> this is the OG social distancing. That's rough. You got even no chance of touching another human being. So they need help. They need help. And so verse 13, they are standing at a distance and they yell Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Master. In the book of Luke, only disciples call Jesus Master. They're already taking a step towards discipleship here. They're not just looking for a handout. They're acting like disciples. And yet, even still, there's this uncrossable gulf between them and Jesus, a distance that they themselves have no power to close on their own. So they just cry out, mercy, mercy. And Jesus replies, verse 14, with the best news they've ever heard. <laughs> they've ever heard. Because when Jesus tells them, go show yourself to the priests, he is only quoting the Old Testament law from Leviticus 13 and into 14, which commands someone who is healed of leprosy to go show themselves to the priest, any priest. The priest would look at them and declare them healed, and then they could re-enter society normally again. From a 50-pace distance, with no hesitation, Jesus simply speaks. And there they go, healed as they go. They called him master, and Jesus says, indeed I am even over the bacteria inside your body. So, <laughs> amazing, amazing, except that only one of them returns. Verse 15, he turns back, one of Luke's favorite phrases. He turns back to 
Jesus, praising God with a loud voice, with a loud voice. In order to picture this, the, the best analogy, and I, I think this may very well be in Luke's mind, Luke may be reminded of this because this is exactly what King David did when the Ark of the Covenant was brought back to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6. He led the pr- procession, all the people of God, the great King David dancing a jig in front of all of his people. As chapter 6, verse 14 of 2 Samuel says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might. <laughs> is that proper for a king? Of course it is. Because of the power of God. That's what this man is doing here. Yelling with a loud voice, Praise God. And then the man who was healed, did something he had not done, I presume, in a very, very, very long time. Verse 16, he closes the gap with Jesus and he touches him. Touches him. Falls at his feet. The gap between him and his master has been closed. He falls humbly at Jesus' feet. That's what you do with a king in ancient days. You fall at the king's feet. This man is filled with joy and he is filled with worship. Jesus is not only his master, Jesus is his king, but Jesus is the friend of his soul. (laughs) He is his healer. He is his God. (laughs) In the miracle, he found God in the miracle. And he can't believe it. He's free. He found God. And so he rejoices, just like King David, the king of the Jews. And Luke notes in his efficient deadpan style, and he was a Samaritan, just like King David, dancing just like King David. So then to everyone else, the town, the disciples, the Pharisees, you and me, Jesus asks a question that must be answered. This is not rhetorical on Jesus' part. Were not ten cleansed? Where's the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? We'll come back to that word foreigner in a moment. I'll just tell you now, Jesus is not uh, acting out of xenophobia here. We'll come back to it in a second. But, but first note the turn of Jesus' language from where's the other nine to was not anyone found to return? Looking at the disciples, looking at the Pharisees standing there, looking at the villagers, was not anyone found to praise God besides this man? You who all saw this, you all just saw this miracle and you're just standing there. Why is he the only one, you included, why is he the only one praising God for this? Why did it not occur to anyone except this foreigner, a Jew would have spit it out, to return and give praise to God for what just happened right before your eyes? Why is that? That's a good question. It's not a rhetorical question. It's a question we are meant to answer. Yeah, why is that? We answer this question and a whole new world comes cascading down before us. But for now, verse 19, Jesus turns back to the Samaritan. The priest could only have declared him healed, but Jesus declares him free. 
rise. Go your way. <laughs> That's something. Go your way. No, really. What, what, what do you want me to do? Go your way. Enjoy your life. Enjoy my gift to you. You're free. <laughs> You're free. Enjoy your gift. Enjoy my grace. And then Jesus declares him well and saved, body and soul. We can know this because the original word here can be translated either well or saved. And which is it? The answer is yes. <laughs> By faith, the man was healed, body and soul. By his faith. Jesus wants him to know the outcome of his faith. He is whole, both in body and in soul, by faith. The faith exemplified by the father of Israel, Abraham, who believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I don't know for sure what Jesus' face looked like when he looked at this man and said this, but I wonder if it said something like, I'm proud of you. I'm not I'm proud of you. I'm proud of, I'm proud of you because I'm proud of God in you, but I'm proud of you. Proud of you because you look just like King David. Just like King David. You Samaritan you. My son. My son whom I've called. Well, but those who think they're already fulfilling the purposes of God. Here is this Samaritan fulfilling the purposes of God, as we will see. The purposes of God being for his people to glorify him, to enjoy him. And those who think that they're already there, that they're already doing this, the Pharisees, well, they have a question. Verses 20 and 21. They see the miracle, and they treat it like a sign of the kingdom, which you know it, it was. But their question reveals just how deeply pride can blind us. After seeing all that had just taken place and then hearing Jesus' words, they ask, um, yeah, so, got a question. Um, when is the kingdom of God coming again? Because I got a tennis match at four, so. <laughs> Jesus replies, and I, I kind of behold the patience of Jesus here. It's like, dudes, <laughs> it's right here in your midst. Like, like, first off, in me, like, like standing right in front of you and, and kneeling at my feet. You couldn't see it coming when I just simply spoke the words and those men were healed. You, you couldn't see it operating like a scientist or a historian could. You can see it that way. You can observe it that way with signs that you can observe. But is it not here? Like, are you blind? Yes, they are. <laughs> Yes, they are. And their question demonstrates that. They're blind. It's within their grasp, and yet they can't grasp it because they're blinded. They're blinded, and now we get to the reason why there was only one on that day, worshiping and glorifying God. The answer is really twofold. I'll put it this way. The pride of man and the plan of God. The pride of man and the plan of God. That's why there was only one man returning to Jesus to give God glory. The Jews, for their part, had fallen into the, the old joke that the old preacher tells about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. You know, Jesus riding in 
on a donkey and the people shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, waving palms, putting, putting blankets in their, in their coats on the, on the road, to just shouting, shouting, Hosanna, praise to the glory to God in the highest. And the old preacher says, wouldn't it be something if that donkey thought all of that was about him? <laughs> if all that cheering was for him, wouldn't that be something? But that's what the Jews had done. They made it all about them. They had completely inverted God's purpose for them. Even the the, the very shape of the temple displayed to them their purpose. There was an inner court in which only Jews could go into in order to glorify God, in order to enjoy him and celebrate him. But that was so that the Gentiles, the nations, would come into the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, and join them in this chorus of praise to God. This was the court of the Gentiles that Jesus had to clear the money changers out from. The reason why Jesus was so angry that day was not first because they were exchanging money, was because they were taking up the space that was reserved for the Gentiles to come in and worship God. That had always been the design, the purpose of God's people to so praise him and enjoy him and glorify him that the rest of the nations will be drawn to that light and join in that chorus of praise. So when Jesus uses the word foreigner here, it's not that he has a problem, like I said, with xenophobia. He's actually using their word. He's actually using their word because there was a wall called the Sarek that divided the inner court in the outer court of the Gentiles in the temple. And in the late 1800s, an archaeologist found a stone from this wall, from the Sarek, and there was an inscription on the stone that said, foreigners, same word, foreigners, if you cross this point, you will only have yourself to blame for your death. Can you imagine that? Inscribed right next to Psalm 34, right here on our wall. (laughs) That's what it was like. They had completely inverted the whole thing and made it all about themselves instead of Psalm 34. Oh, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. They essentially said, get out. (laughs) Get out. You're not welcome. And this is what pride does. This is what pride does to them and to us in modern America, we Christians. We, too, are so prone to make all of this about us. We're so prone to make, if if the world's a theater, we're so prone to make the play about us and even worship about us, about our feelings, about what I want, me, myself, and I, that unholy trinity. We're so prone to make God the secondary character in this play who just comes in and out of the play to serve us, to make everything work out okay in the end for us. To foot a Put a fine point on it, I, and I, me included here, we too often relate to God like spoiled children who just love daddy for their money. We're far more like the nine who once they had what they really wanted were never seen again. The Puritan John Owen once wrote um, that sometimes God leaves a sin in our life because, because he knows that what we really want is just to feel good about ourselves again. Which means that if he granted us our wish, we would feel good about ourselves and that's what we really want and then he would never hear from us again. God is that sovereign to even use our sin for our sanctification. So, uh, 
And, and, and if he were to do that, if he were to grant us our wish, we would be rid of that sin and we would be just as separated from him as we were before, except worse now, because now we would be in church every single Sunday wrapped in a respectable suit of finely pressed pride. That old sin that we would never be caught dead with in church, that porn, that addiction, we would never be caught dead with that. We're done with that, but pride cleans up really well. Pride comes in the door really nicely. We're all susceptible to this. I put myself here. We have to put ourselves here. Because when the Bible says that pride is a problem, we ourselves are all swimming in that, in that same pool. We, we all are part of the reason why there's chlorine in the water. <laughs> Thus, we must not assume that, of course, we would identify of all the people in this. Of course, we'd like the Samaritan. Of course. Because while in the previous stories, God leaves behind the 99 to find the one, we are not God, newsflash. And our human proclivity is to be like the nine who leave behind the one. As soon as we get what we really wanted, that healing, that feeling better about ourselves, that promotion, that increase in income, whatever, whatever blessing it may be, blessings that they may be. And the dire possibility is that we might spend our entire lives in church doing churchy things and yet miss God's purpose for us the whole time. So while the, the, the gospel presents us sometimes with intellectual challenges, you might be wondering, who is the Samaritans again? And what, what year was that? And am I scribbling, taking notes? You know, sometimes it's hard to keep up because I talk too fast or whatever. You know, sometimes there's intellectual challenges to the gospel. Sometimes there's like just problems of information. Um, but there's always the challenge, always the challenge of surrender. Will you and I humbly surrender to this master or not? That is always, always, always the question. Always constantly facing us. To surrender to God, to this master in humility, to surrender to his plan, to surrender to his plan. So, so, so where do we do this? Well, we do this by seeing God's plan because it has always been his plan, being a humble God himself, to become an outcast on our behalf and to call in the outcasts that we may enjoy him and call in all the other outcasts. So the, how do we get humble? We look to this plan how do we draw? How are we drawn to surrender? Y yes, there is in the Bible the threat of judgment, but there is a wooing by this God that says, Look, I am a humble Savior, and I hold out to you grace. Grace. And I do not identify you. I do not look at you and slap a label on you that says you are a leper or you are an addict or you are a druggie or you are homeless or you are rich or you are privileged. I don't look at you that way. You're my creation. But you need grace. Here it is. But you have to surrender to take it. So what does this look like? I, I would like to just read a passage of Scripture and let the word speak. This is from Isaiah 53. In, in, your, in your Bible, if you want to use the Bible in front of you, I believe it's on page 547. Page 547, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. <clears throat> Isaiah prophesying, prophesying of the suffering servant to come writes this. Long before Jesus, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Speaking of Jesus, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the, out from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, the Lord, has put him to grief. And then in one of the most startling images in Scripture, it says this, Isaiah 53, verse 10, and then again in 11. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, for our guilt, he shall see his offspring, Jesus, who was never married, never had sexual relations with a woman. He shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, see who? His offspring and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, just like Abraham, to be accounted righteous by faith, and he shall bear their iniquities. No one can be here at the foot of the cross and be proud. There are no proud people at the foot of the cross. So first we look at this and then we must ask ourselves, what kinds of people are his offspring? Well, we keep reading in chapter 54 of Isaiah, it says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Bring forth into singing and cry aloud for you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. The the offspring of Jesus will be like people who, who were once called by the world desolate and unable to bear children, and yet they will have more children than anyone has ever seen. Then in chapter 56, if you would turn there to verse 3, it says, two other images. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch, a, a man who could not uh, procreate, let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. 
For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And then lastly, in verse 6, tell me if this reminds you of anyone. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. This is the very verse that Jesus quoted when he cleaned out the court of the Gentiles. A house of prayer for whom? For all peoples. It's always been God's idea from the very beginning to bring in all of the nations into his house to praise him. The Lord God, verse 8, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, barren women, eunuchs, foreigners, he declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Even humble people in Sacramento, California. <laughs> this is the God, the missionary God who is there, the God who calls in humble outcasts, those who know that they are distanced from God, who know that they have no power within themselves to bridge that distance, to bridge that gulf. Is that you? Is that you? Because you qualify. <laughs> you qualify now to enter his house. You qualify to come and see that he is a gentle savior, humble, as Matthew 11 says. You, you qualify to come and rest at his feet to rest. It is no coincidence that the Samaritans' praise to God is almost an exact quote of the humble shepherd's praise in Luke 2 on the first Christmas Eve. And in Luke's gospel, no disciple, no Pharisee ever hears the words, your faith has made you well, except these four people. The sinful woman in chapter 7. The sinful woman the hemorrhaging woman in chapter 8 who just touched the hem of his garment, this Samaritan, and as we will see later, a blind beggar in chapter 18. Only those four hear this phrase, your faith has made you well. This is a God who gives merciful grace to who? The humble. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The humble who have faith in Jesus. Who have faith in Jesus. So this leads us to three applications. Three applications of what this looks like. What this humble surrender to Jesus looks like. And the first is the freedom of faith. The freedom of faith. It is not enough to be humbled by oppression, by illness, or by affliction. The oppressed are just as likely to be the oppressor when the tables turn. That's the human heart. Imagine being that man, the Samaritan, who had so long struggled under his affliction, and now he is free, freed by the mercy of God. 
Perhaps for you it's not a physical ailment. Perhaps it's a sin that has dogged you for so long and you feel enslaved to it. Nobody knows about it. It's down in the shadows, but it's there and it dogs you and it saps the energy of your life. It saps your personality. It saps everything. You too need his mercy. You too need to hear by a priest forgiven, cleansed, free. And you have one. You have one in Jesus. But maybe it means you need to confess that sin, that dark sin, to somebody else, a priest here in this church, who can say to you, you know the gospel's true for you too. (laughs) You know you're free. You know that, right? You know that you have nothing more to earn. You know that, right? If you have Christ He is faithful and just, as Steve prayed earlier, to to not only forgive us of all of our sins, but to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You got nothing left to earn. Have you felt that? Have you received that grace and gone outdoors again and seen that the sky is suddenly bluer than it was 15 minutes ago? Have you seen everything differently? Because this mercy, this grace changes everything to be free, to be secure, to be whole in Jesus. There's simply nothing else like this feeling. (laughs) Nothing else. Do you know this freedom? Do you know this? Do you know that in this God, you can have wholeness, wholeness in body and in soul, You can have it all in him. It is the only place where this wholeness in body and soul can be found. Because, because one day he will return, this resurrected king, and he will call us one more time. And when he calls us, we won't need to call him. He will call us and he will give us a new glorified body and he will unite this glorified body with our cleansed souls and we will be whole forever. Forever. No one can take this away from you. So, do you know this? By faith, by faith, by trusting in Jesus. Do you know this? Well, if you do, if you know that that burden is gone, if you've come to that point, I have, where, where, where you, you feel the burden taken off, and then you ask yourself, okay, <clears throat> what now? <laughs> what else do I do? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Like, what, what else do I do now? <laughs> That, that sin that's dogged me for so much, it took up so much mental space in my life. It took up so much energy, so much, like, what, what, what do I do now? And the answer of your master will be this, enjoy my gift. <laughs> enjoy the gift. Enjoy the gift in all of your life. You're freed. You're freed. Really, that's all I demand of you. Enjoy my gift. As Nehemiah told the people in Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is your strength to enjoy all of the blessings in him, to enjoy a fine meal with friends in his name, to enjoy one's work in his name, to enjoy one's husband or wife in his name, to grieve over the loss of a spouse in his name, to, to just have a simple conversation over coffee with a friend, to enjoy him in all of it. 
Well, this is the second application, and the best way that I can put it is a jolliness of joy, a jolliness of joy. And I, I put it this way because we cannot keep this mountain-high experience going every moment, as we saw last week. But there is a jolliness that can grow within us out of our joy in Christ and that can stick with us even in the darkest of times. Jolliness is joy that has a strength to it that resists the darkness, that smiles in the face of one's enemies. Jolliness is a joy on war footing. Jolliness is joy that fights. And where does it come from? It comes from knowing the outcome of our faith. The outcome of our faith, as I've already said, that not only was Jesus crucified for us, but that he was raised for us. We know the outcome. Those new glorified bodies that we will enjoy one day, they will be impervious to tears or illness or death. One day we will be truly and forever healed and saved. We will be well. We know the outcome. And this is the source of jolliness in the face of the darkness. This jolly joy is the heart of our purpose. This is your purpose, Christian, in this life, to live with this jolly joy in your master. It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> this jolly joy because this is the chief way that we glorify God by enjoying him, by faith, this is our job now. This is our marching order to enjoy him, not with me at the center of the, of the drama, not with me at the center of the universe, but with him at the center of the universe and me enjoying him and, and living my life in a jolly joy because of him. This is our marching orders. We are the primary characters and it is our job, it is our primary role now to enjoy his gift, to taste and see that the God at the center of it all is indeed good. And it's that enjoyment that glorifies God just as the Samaritan did. Just as the Samaritan did who reinverted back the purposes of God's people and did what Israel always should have been doing, shining a bright light on this God by simply enjoying him. Our purpose is to live with jolly joy in him, in the freedom of faith, and thirdly, all the while calling the world to his kingdom. The call of the kingdom. And this call is not some nebulous, ambiguous call. It is a call that must land on the ground wherever we live and whatever we face as individuals or as a society. Take, for instance, as, as was prayed earlier about the, the problem of racism. Too many Christians call Jesus master on Sundays, but then when they go to solve racism, call up Karl Marx or his offspring, the founders of BLM. The problem is, Karl Marx was not crucified and raised from the dead. Karl Marx's body is in the ground, as are millions of people who died under his philosophies over the last century. There's only one king, only one who has been raised from the dead. 
And it is by seeing him and trusting in him and rejoicing in him that the nations will be gathered together in one true, unbreakable unity. That has always been the point, that has always been the purpose of God to create a people who would so rejoice in his son that it would draw in all the other nations and all of our hatred, all of our animosity, all of our pride based on color or ethnicity would be burned away under the white hot heat of our joy in this Savior. That is how it'll get broken down. And how do I know this? I know this because the word says that it will happen. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces, just like the Samaritan. (laughs) They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. We would say no more, but your glory bankrupts our languages. Amen. You know, this God is so glorious that it'll take every tongue, tribe, and nation, every language, every color, every ethnicity to properly praise him at the end. Do you know that? Only in the joy of the grace, the mercy of this wonderful Savior will the peoples unite And so why do we run off to anyone else when we have before us the power, the proclamation of this king who has come and who has risen from the dead? That is what must be proclaimed. That we know a king who has risen and around him the nations will unite. You could apply this to anything else, everything else in life. Because if he has risen from the dead, he's king. Over what? Whatever you're thinking about right now. It is reigned over by the king. By a risen king. It is a risen king in his kingdom that we proclaim. Now, of course, saying such will leave us very alone. This is ridiculous talk, right? Proclaiming a risen king as an answer to racism? What a ridiculous thought. Of course, then, that would leave us very much like the Samaritan who was all alone on that day, all by himself, with Jesus standing over him, with a look of pride on his face, saying, well done, my son. You are healed. Go your way in peace. I'm proud of you. Do you want that? (laughs) I do. I do. Well, this is our charge, Christian. This is our charge to believe him, to enjoy him, and to call the world to him. <laughs> it's our charge. Well, let me pray for this. 
Oh, dear Father, I, I pray, start with me. Start with me and give us the mercy and the grace that we need. I've heard some people say not to ask for humility because you just might give it to us. But I also know that you resist the proud, and that is an awful thing. I want your grace, so I pray start with me. Would you grant me humility? But will you work in all of us, grant us repentance from our pride, which is the mother of all other sins. Grant us faith wherever we need it. If anyone is here today and has not come to you, will you grant faith? Will you grant a turning back to you? Will you grant repentance? Then will you grant sight to see you and seeing you, will you grant us a jolly joy as you set a table before us in the presence of our enemies? Will you grant us a jolly joy that the world is attracted to that shines a bright light on your kingdom? And let the proclamation of your kingdom therefore be adorned by that jolly joy and call your outcasts to yourself. For you were cast out for us to the glory of the Father. I guess what I'm trying to ask for is will your name be glorified here? Will you be glorified here? Really, truly, we pray. Amen.